0: Got a little sound device here for Kevin to pick him up. So, uh, uh, good morning, and if you would please turn with me to Mark chapter 6. And it is a good morning indeed. Two days ago, Roe met the fate that it has deserved for over 49 years now. We have prayed and wept and voted and marched and protested for this day, and we praise and thank God that it has arrived. Some people who have fought long in the battle did not live to see this day, but we're glad that we have. It's a day of thanksgiving, and it's a sobering day as well, because we know that the fight is not over. It's just another step forward. And may God work mightily to preserve life and strengthen us for that. Uh, Perhaps you've had experiences of being in marches and rallies in the past. For a number of years, Artina and I lived a a short drive from Minnesota's mega provider of abortions. Uh, That would be the Planned Parenthood off of Vandalia Street in St. Paul. It's the third largest abortion facility in the nation. Uh, we had a few opportunities to join and organized rallies and protests in front of the clinic. Uh, at one rally, we were two out of about 400 or so pro-life demonstrators there. Uh, and the pro-abortion demonstrators had organized well that day. They turned out with about four to 5,000 people in counter-protest to our protest of about 400. So we were outnumbered about 10 to 1. Uh... Uh, I mean, they even pulled out all the stops. They, they had the witches for abortion there that day to curse and send hexes, and, and uh, it was a unique feeling being there that day, I can say, um, but I'm glad I was there. Uh, no violence was carried out that day, to my knowledge, other than the atrocities that took place inside the building, uh, but violence certainly occurred and has occurred in other sectors. Um, even over the last month, we've seen Uh, Pro-life centers and and women's resource centers that have been graffitied and vandalized and some buildings firebombed. Even yesterday, another one was burned down. Others have had their windows bashed in. Uh, A group called Jane's Revenge is promising further acts of terrorism against pro-life organizations and even churches have been under threat. In light of that, should we be afraid? No, I don't think we should. We know that God is with us he's with his people and uh, if we face persecution we are uh, in his hands and we're not the first people to face opposition and we find in our passage today uh, a message that should both sober us and can give us stability it's something of a hard word but if it's received in faith it will help us to be faithful in our day come what may Jesus sends out his disciples and tells them how to respond when they face rejection. And then we're going to be given the story of the last day of John the Baptist's life. Let's read our passage now in Mark chapter 6. We'll be starting in verse 7, reading down through verse 29, and I'll include verse 30, even though it's part of next week's passage. Mark 6, 7. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom." And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, for the head of John the Baptist. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths, And his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. The girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Let's pray. Father, you are good and perfect and true and holy. And we, your people, want to reflect you to a watching world around us. Help us to be faithful in our day. Help us to uh, do as we sang, that we would go where you'd call us to go and say what you'd call us to say and do what you'd call us to do, Lord. Pray that you would help us to be men and women of conviction, faithful before you, who bring the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ, to the world around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, this is a sobering text. Just before this, last week, when we were earlier on in Mark chapter 6, we see that Jesus faces rejection in his hometown. We read here that John the Baptist is executed. And in between these two stories, uh, we see that Jesus sends out his apostles To do miracles, to preach, and to cast out demons. I think one of the key lessons for us in this passage is this. We want to trust God as you point others to Him and don't be surprised by opposition. Trust God as you point others to Him and don't be surprised by opposition. You see that as we work through this passage in two sections. We want to first heed the call to faithful ministry, and second, we want to pay the cost. faithful ministry. First, I want to heed the call to faithful ministry. In verses 7 to 12, we see Jesus calls 12 apostles to go out and engage in the ministry that he's already been doing. He's been setting an example for them in the ministry that he has done. Throughout Mark, we have seen Jesus engaging in preaching and healing and casting out demons. And this is what his disciples are going to be called to do. We saw that in verses 12 and 13. Mark here emphasizes Jesus' call to cast out demons, as he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now It would probably be obvious that their ministry flowed out of Jesus and his authority when they were doing the same things that he was doing. And he was, uh, they were going out in his name, most likely. And we've already seen, and we've seen it in this passage as well, that Jesus' fame is spreading around. And so they're going to be going out to these little villages and preaching there and performing miracles like what Jesus had done there. They're going to be extending the ministry of Jesus out to more areas. After calling them to do this, Jesus gives them some striking commands in verses 8 and 9. He tells them to take nothing with them except a staff, one tunic, and a pair of sandals. They don't need a hiking backpack uh, they're, they're traveling pretty light. He doesn't even let them take food with them. <laughs> now That is striking. Uh, why does Jesus do this? And notice here he doesn't actually tell them why he's doing it. He just tells them to go. But I do think one of the key reasons why he tells them to do this, to travel so lightly, is he's inviting them to trust God. If they're going to go out and literally have not even food with them, then they're going to have to trust God to provide everything they need. And they're going to go as well, I think, with a sense of urgency over the whole matter. They're they're to go now, to go quickly. Uh, they're not packing a bag to be out for two to three weeks. Um, they're, they're going right now. I think there's a sense of urgency there, and their faith in God will allow them to take the risk to go. But just because God is going to take care of them, doesn't mean that the whole trip is going to be pleasant or successful, at least successful by the world's metrics. Uh, Jesus instructs them about how they're to go and enter these towns. If Somebody, Jesus says here, if they welcome you, stay in that one house. I don't think they were meant to be hopping around to different houses and trying to find better hospitality, uh, maybe a better place or a better meal. If they were accepted in a house, stay there the whole time you're there. Jesus also gives them some instructions about if they're not accepted. In some places, they were going to be rejected. Some people were going to refuse to hear them. And if they were not given a listening ear, Jesus tells them to depart from that town. Remember, Nazareth rejected Jesus and he moved on. They were to do much the same if they were rejected in villages. And when they leave, he says to, to shake the dust off the bottom of their feet, as a testimony against them. Now, that might seem like a strange thing to us. We don't have that as a common cultural practice, not at least where I grew up. Uh, but what we read in other documents of this time is that that was actually a relatively common practice in that day. Uh, people would, if they traveled to, especially Orthodox Jews, who were faithful, observant Jews, if they traveled into a Gentile village and town, Uh, they didn't want to track that dirt back home with them. So as they left, they would shake the dirt off of their feet, get the dirt out of their sandals. They didn't want to track it with them. They didn't want so much as the unclean dirt of that village to go along with them. Uh, It was a testimony against this place. Now, if that is what's in Jesus' mind here, another striking aspect of that is that then, to some extent, he's saying that if these Jewish villages reject you and the message that you're bringing they're as bad as the Gentiles that would be a pretty offensive thing to the Jewish people who wouldn't accept Jesus I think something that instructs us is that uh, it doesn't matter who you are or what advantage you think you might have if you reject Jesus you're not accepted by God the Jewish people could not claim to be the sons of Abraham and therefore entitled to go to heaven if they rejected Jesus that was it so the apostles, they go out, and they do the very thing that Jesus has called them to. They preach that people would repent. This is much the same message that John the Baptist had when he preached. When Jesus began his ministry in, early, in the early part of Mark here, much the same thing. Calling for repentance, calling for faith. We can assume that's here as well. They cast out many demons, just as the demons had to submit To Jesus, when he extended his authority to his disciples, the demons had to submit to the disciples and go. They anoint people with oil and heal them. They do so many of the things that Jesus had done in his earthly ministry. They're acting as an extension of that uh, to the villages around. They represent Jesus as they go out to the villages that are around Nazareth. And in our own way, uh, we represent Jesus today. No, we're not apostles like these men. Uh, The the offices that they held were unique offices. I believe they died with them. Uh, But there is still a reality that we are disciples of Jesus. We are commissioned by him. We are representatives of him. And we're called to go out for him. We still preach and teach and do good things in the name of Jesus to his glory. If people accept the words that we speak about Jesus and accept us in that way, then they have accepted Christ. If we are rejected along with the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, then it's Christ primarily that they've rejected. We shouldn't be surprised that some people do not accept Jesus Christ. Jesus himself, as we've seen, was rejected in his hometown. We shouldn't be surprised if people still reject him today. But we can trust God. We should trust God and continue to speak about Jesus to those around us. Uh, We can trust him for wherever he commissions us to go. Jesus didn't stop his ministry just because he faced opposition. Uh, This opposition, as we'll see in Mark's gospel, is going to culminate in his crucifixion. But because Jesus didn't shrink back and went forward in the face of opposition, he accomplished our salvation. Uh, He took our sins upon himself. He died on the cross. And because he was the sinless son of God, God raised him up from the dead and exalted him. Uh, Praise God that Jesus didn't shrink back just because he faced opposition. In fact, it was part of the very mission itself. The good news of the gospel was accomplished because Jesus didn't turn back even though he was rejected. And the disciples were faithful to go out with this gospel message and share it, even though it would cost them everything. Because of their faithfulness and the faithfulness of many, many Christian generations, even in the face of rejection, the gospel has come to us today. The only way that we could have heard of the gospel today is if people went with that gospel message. Many people died, many people gave everything, stewarded this message faithfully so that we could hear it this morning. Apart from that, we wouldn't be gathered here. We owe a lot to a lot of people. Of course, primarily to God and his work for us through his son, but so many people in between that and now for that message to be here for us. God has called us to continue in that work. We're a part of that chain of believers who are extending this gospel message on to the next generation, and it will continue until Jesus returns. We may suffer, of course we'd rather not, But if we do suffer, then he's with us and he will care for us in it. And it will never be wasted. What may mean pain for us will mean the chance to hear of Jesus for somebody else. May God help us to count Christ worth it and count the salvation of the lost as worth it. Jump down to the end of the passage here in verse 30. Mark's going to mention that the apostles do return. They come back and they report about all the things that they've done and taught. And once again, we, we find another one of Mark's sandwiches. Hope I'm not wearing you out with all this talk about sandwiches in Mark's gospel. This is this is what this is one of the techniques he has. He takes a story and he puts another story right in the middle of it. He he interrupts it, if you will. And by doing that, he's tying these things together, and we're meant to read it together. And so Early on in this passage, we've read about the disciples, the the apostles being commissioned to go out. And after the story of John the Baptist, we get the recap, we get what happens when they come back, we get the report, the final report. But in the middle of that, we have the story of John the Baptist and his execution. In many ways, this is going to be a foretaste of Christ's own execution, but it's also, I think, here for an illustration for the apostles, that they would know that they'd have a picture of what some of the things will be that they will face. So we've seen the call to heed, uh, the call to faithful ministry. We've already begun this, but let's look next at the call to pay the cost of faithful ministry. You see that in verses 14 to 29. And These verses start with uh, a note about Herod hearing about Jesus. We've already heard that the fame of Jesus is beginning to spread throughout Galilee. I mean, he's healing entire villages. He's got disruptions in the middle of synagogue services where demon-possessed people are screaming out. Uh, there was the story where 2,000 pigs get possessed by the demons that come out of Legion and they rush down and they die. That kind of news travels around, you know. If They didn't really have the news networks going on where you could jump on their phone and look at it, but news still spread. People were still interested to hear news. Anything that was going on was interesting and worth talking about. And so the, the news begins to spread and spread, and now it's come to Herod. Herod's heard about it. Jesus, in another place, calls Herod that fox. Uh, he's certainly a, a man of uh, machinations. Uh, that's a weird word. He, he's a tricky kind of guy. That water's dripping out right by your foot that Noah just dropped. So, thank you. So, and there, another thing is there's a lot of Herods in the Bible, there's the Herod that was uh, in charge. I think this is Herod the Great when Jesus is born. Uh, that's, that's not this Herod. This is also known as, as Herod Antipas. This is Herod's, that Herod's son. Well, he rules for 30, 40 years, something like that. And uh, we hear at this point that he hears about Jesus. And rumors begin to spread about who Jesus is. Some people say, well, it's got to be John the Baptist raised from the dead. And that's why he's got these miraculous powers. Uh, Other people say, well, he's got to be Elijah. Other people say that he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. I think the idea is one of the prophets of the Old Testament. People are talking about Jesus. uh, But Herod is certain about who he thinks Jesus is. Uh, He's probably got a guilty conscience to go along with that. He says... John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now, as delusional as Herod may be, that tells us a lot. But it doesn't tell us the whole story. And so Mark goes on to explain what exactly happened to John. The last time we heard about John in Mark's gospel, he was in prison. Uh, And Mark's going to fill out the story for us now in chapter 6. He's going to give us the details of what happens to John. Now, John had preached against Herod, taking his brother Philip's wife. John had told him that it wasn't lawful for him to have his brother's wife. And certainly it wasn't. Uh, The situation here, you've got uh, Philip, also called Herod in other contexts. Uh, His wife Herodias, which is his niece. It's kind of a sordid story all the way around. uh, He's married her. She has left him and gone to... Marry this Herod, Herod Antipas, uh, the brother of Philip. and uh, this, is, this is prohibited in the Old Testament law in a few places. Leviticus 1816, Leviticus 20:21. 20, so there's very clear laws prescri- uh, prohibiting this in the Old Testament. And John, I mean, he's just bringing it up. He says, "Hey, Herod, you can't do this." <laughs> uh, As a result, Herod sends his goons to grab John and throw him in prison. Apparently, this, as we see here, is at Herodias' request. Uh, And she'd like to take it up a notch. She wants John dead, but Herod won't allow it. Mark tells us that he fears John. He knows that John is a good man. He's a holy and a righteous man. Now, if John is Elijah, who is to come, as Jesus will tell us in Matthew's gospel, <laughs> then I, I guess maybe that makes Herod somebody like Ahab, and you know who that would make Herodias then, right? She's something of a Jezebel of sorts, and maybe that's not being stressed here, but there's some interesting parallels there. Uh, Mark also notes that uh, Herod, he takes time to listen to John, yeah, he's an interesting figure, this Herod. Uh, it says that he hears John gladly. At the same time, he's perplexed by John. I have to imagine he sits down with John and John says, have you repented yet? Do you got any defense for yourself? Herod doesn't know. The, the word for perplexed here is to be at a loss. Uh, Herod sits down and he listens to John and he's at a loss. He doesn't have any response. He doesn't have any defense, but he, he's, he hears him gladly. And he listens to him. But he doesn't do anything about it. He sits there confronted by his sin. He's not ready. He's not ready to repent. He's not ready to obey. And that's a dangerous place to be in. Brothers and sisters, we don't want to be in that place. If we have any known sin in our life, we want to confess it and turn from it immediately. We don't want to know where it's going to lead us. We'll see where it leads Herod. The day comes when Herod's many sins will drive him into a place of no escape. He becomes cornered by his sins into a greater sin. Now sin, that's just the way sin works. It likes to work off of itself in the hearts and lives of people. It, uh, it grows. Well, and the fateful day for Herod comes on his birthday. And because he is so important... At least in his own mind, he invites anybody who's anybody to come to his birthday party. He invites all the nobles. He invites his military commanders. He gets the leaders of Galilee. And you can imagine all of these men seated and feasting and growing drunker by the hour as they're all together at this party. And then for entertainment for all these grown men, a young woman comes out and dances for them. Mark says she's a girl, it's probably a teenager. While she probably wasn't doing a Shirley Temple tap dance. I'll leave it at that. In an act that's as impulsive as it is foolish, Herod goes on and writes her a blank check. He says to her, I'll paraphrase, he says, you ask and I'll give it to you. Up to half my kingdom, promise, right in front of everybody. She goes and she asks her mom. Herodias doesn't think twice. Uh, This is the the day that Herodias has been dreaming of. Uh, Realistically, she probably had a part in the events that came together the way they did. She wants John dead. Everybody must have been interested to hear what she's going to ask for. She goes out, talks to her mom, she comes back. It's a, uh, a feast, there's laughter, there's chuckling, people are... Joking to each other, and, and they want to know what is she going to say. I mean, I must—they must be wondering, right? Because if she could ask for half of the kingdom. You know, they're they're kind of curious. What's Herod going to go without? You know, he's he's made this promise, and she asked for John to be beheaded. I have to uh, imagine that the laughter ended at that point. Uh, this throws Herod into a moment of personal crisis. Would he sacrifice his pride or his conscience? Will he do without his sin? Or will he do without this voice of righteousness in his life? What's it going to be? Would he do the right thing? Or would he save face? Verse 27 tells it all. And immediately the king, excuse me, verse 26, he says, And the king was exceedingly sorry but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. There it is. He doesn't want to look like a fool. He doesn't want to go back on what he said. He sends an executioner. John dies at the hands of a sin-saturated king. At the schemes of a woman on par with Jezebel. Now It must have been a happy day for Satan. The forerunner of Jesus is stricken dead, and all it took was lust, pride, greed, and the fear of man. It took some pretty normal run-of-the-mill sins to take down one so great as John. And what exactly was John guilty of? What is it that brought him to this place of being executed? He was guilty of living according to his conscience. He was guilty of applying the word of God to sexual immorality. He was guilty of not being afraid of anybody, not even the king. He was guilty of fulfilling the mission that God had set him apart for even before he was conceived. That's what John was guilty of. He was guilty of living and speaking according to God's righteousness. In one way, he was everything that Herod wasn't. He was faithful to God right through the end. In a very touching moment, his disciples come and they take his body. They hear about what's happened to their master, and they come and they take him, and they give him a proper burial. John's unjust execution strikes a serious chord in Mark's gospel at this moment. Now, a lot of sparks have flown over Jesus' teaching. Uh, Exciting things have happened. Uh, In Jesus' confrontation with the religious leaders, people have been getting hot under the collar. Yeah, they've been planning to kill him. But nothing like this has happened yet. This shows just how blood serious all of this is. This is no joke. Now, at times, it can be very dangerous to live according to God's will. John the Baptist was a forerunner to Jesus' earthly ministry, and he will be a, a forerunner to Jesus' death, one commentator points out. Just as John is executed unjustly, so will Jesus be. So Jesus will, in fact, rise shortly thereafter from the dead. And why is this sandwiched in here? Now, Mark could have given us this whole story, Back in Mark chapter 1, when he introduces John the Baptist, he could have just told us that whole story. Why is it here? Well, I think it's here because it's meant to tell us a lesson. I think, again, it's it's a reminder of the seriousness of the call to follow Jesus. Of these 12 apostles, these 12 that are sent out, of these 12, only one is going to die of old age. Now, of course, you know that from the rest of the gospel story that Judas hangs himself, kills himself after betraying Jesus. Uh, tradition has it that John, the apostle, will die of old age, but he's going to be the only one who dies of old age. Now, some of this is from what we have within scripture, other things from tradition, uh, but I want to just say as best we know what happens to the rest of these apostles here. Pretty universally pointed to, for Thomas, uh, The history is quite consistent here. According to record, Thomas, the apostle, is speared to death while sharing the gospel in India. Andrew, the brother of Peter, is crucified in a Greek colony. James, beheaded by Herod's son in Jerusalem. This is Acts chapter 12. Uh, Herod, the son of this Herod that we're talking about today, he beheads James in Jerusalem. Thaddeus, shot to death with arrows. Levi, also called Matthew, uh, there's various accounts for him. Some say he's beheaded or stoned or burned or stabbed to death. Nathaniel, also called Bartholomew, flayed alive and beheaded in Armenia. Philip is likely either stoned to death or beheaded in Heropolis, which is a city that's close to Colossae where the New Testament book is written. Simon the Zealot is either crucified or beheaded. And Peter is crucified upside down by Nero, likely in Rome. As these these men would get to know Jesus and would come to truly understand who he is, they would count him worthy of everything. They would count him as worthy of their very lives. They didn't count their own lives as precious In comparison with this Jesus, he was worth it all. He was worthy of their lives, and if necessary, he was worthy of them giving their lives for him. The question for us is, is he our life? Is he worthy of our lives? Is he worthy of everything to us? You know, if Jesus is just a stepping stone in our lives to get something else if he's just the means by which maybe we have a, a, the good life or something else like that, then we're not going to sacrifice it all for him. If he is a means to an end, we wouldn't be like we won't be like this. We'd never suffer like that. He has got to be the end- all be-all. He is, he is the one who's worthy of it all, and, and he's got to be that for us, and, and we pray that God would help us, all of us are tempted to cling to the world around us. All of us, uh, we enjoy our lives, and and we want to enjoy that, and that's a good gift from God. But we want to continue to pray and ask that God would help us to to let go of the things around us, whatever he's calling us to. Most of us are not going to be called to this kind of uh, cost that, that these apostles were called to. But we want to be ready. Whatever it is that he calls us to give up for him, We want to do that. We want to join them in that as we represent him to the world around us. Whatever he calls us to, we can know this. He's with us. Wherever he leads us into, we can make it through. He is there to hold our hand through whatever he calls us to face. We must not shrink back when opposition comes. Whether that's opposition to the preaching of the gospel or that's opposition to living according to how he's called us. And we don't do it alone. It's God's wisdom that he's called us together in a body. We're here to encourage one another and strengthen each other's hand to do all that he calls us to do. It's in this way that we're going to heed the call to faithful ministry and pay its cost. Whatever that may be for each one of us. We must not be surprised if opposition comes because we can trust God through it. We're not alone in that. We want to transition now to our time of communion. At Berean we practice what's called an open community